Your property podcast comes to you with thanks to our friends at Trafalgar Square Finance, leading independent specialists in mortgages and all types of property finance. Whether it's buy-to-let, development or bridging finance, Trafalgar Square can help you organise your funding for your next property project. Exclusively to listeners of Your Property Podcast, Trafalgar Square offer a free one-to-one consultation. So whether you are a portfolio landlord looking to raise funds on your existing portfolio, or if you're just starting out and want to find out if you are eligible for a buy-to-let mortgage, Trafalgar Square Finance can help. It's easy to book with one of their experienced consultants by simply visiting yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash finance. You can find this link in the show notes for more details. Hello and welcome to Your Property Podcast. Today we've got with us Jonathan McDermott. Hi, John. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Good to have you on with us. It's been a year since uh, since you came on to, with us last. And last year we were talking about uh, all the changes last August in the planning uh, world. And obviously that's your expertise. So um, it's going to be interesting to see you know, what effect that has had in the last 12 months. And obviously we're recording this on the 7th of September, 2022, and we've just had the new prime minister announced. So lots of changes going on in the, you know, in the, in the, in the world as always, but uh, in, in the planning world. So let's let, where should we start? Let's start at what's happened in the last 12 months, because these changes to the planning, and if you could just recap, you know, why it was significant last year and and what the effects have been for property investors. Okay, so the changes that occurred. So 2020, 2021, um, planning was in a state of flux. Still is, to be fair, but planning was in a state of flux. We were getting brand new changes coming through pretty much constantly from central government. We had more changes to the use classes order and the permitted development order than we've ever had. We ended up having a brand new MPPF as well with many alterations in that. So it was all kicking off. Um, The funny thing is that whilst we as consultants out in the real world have done our darndest to keep up, our friends and colleagues in the planning authority world have not managed to keep up (coughs) to the extent that, (coughs) to the extent that we've got, Uh, a whole sequence of work that we have to do now where we're educating the planning authority on how to behave. That's quite fun. Um, It's led to some great victories for our clients, utilising the 56-day rule for, for, for prior approval on stuff that the planning authority had previously turned around and said, but we don't like it. Oh, well, it's too late. You've gone past your time. You're stuck. You have to accept it. We've won an appeal against an authority up in Stoke where they they didn't believe they could deal with it in a certain way. And the inspector said, no, you were misled. Um, We've even had um, our favourite Milton Keynes Council turn around and admit that their planning officers just cannot keep up, right. which yeah. is the way it is. And, yeah, and planning yeah. is this changing thing at the moment, or has been for the last 12 months. Yeah, it's difficult times out there for these, uh, you know, the, the councils. And I know they get such bad press from investors who, you know, need to get these planning applications through. Um, but the backlog is just huge. There's, you know, they're understaffed. 
they aren't up to speed, as you say, with, uh, with all the regulations, which, you know, is, is crazy to think as investors that you, you know, you might even know more than them. Um, and, and certainly, you know, there's lots that you can do to, um, to support them <laughs> in doing their jobs. But what is the situation for people? Because, and each council is different, right? So it's difficult to kind of have a um, broad, broad sweeping statement across the country, but generally they're struggling. Is there anything that yeah. investors can do to, to, you know, help themselves really as well as the... Okay, so there are a couple of things. So let's try and provide some generalizations. There are three different types of levels of panic. Let's call it that, that councils out there are going through at the moment. There's the council that... Um, says we have a problem and in order to fix that problem we're going to shut certain things down so councils like south end um turned off their pre-application process they just switched it off not doing it now they also refuse to negotiate with you on applications so they'll just deal with what they got in front of them and they'll deal with it in the time period but they only deal with what they got in front of them um, what that means for you as investors out there in the real world is if you know that's the type of council you're working with, you need to adopt a policy compliant approach. You need to adopt it right. Here is the rule book. I'm going to follow that because that's what they're looking for. That's they're looking for compliance with rules. The second type is let's call it the blind panic type. Um, the blind panic type, like bless them, Portsmouth City Council, they know they have a problem. And in preference to uh, being very draconian, like Southend or Maidstone, they've decided to adopt a we'll get to it when we get to it kind of approach. That's all well and good. And that does lead to greater levels of discussion through the application cycle. For investors, what it means is you have to then be able to build in more um, time for your development projects to go through planning. Average at the moment for PCC is six months. Uh, the last type is, shall we call them the bury their head in their sand type. Now, this is the type that recognises they have a problem, but the problem will ultimately just go away. So this is Croydon, for example. Uh, they are trying to run a service. Again, they're the kind of the worst of both worlds. They won't talk to you. The timescales are sort of baffling. And getting hold of a planning officer often involves phoning the head of service 16 times. Uh, Sutton is another really good example of the, the sort of bury the head in the sand kind of approach. I've had to do a non-determination appeal against Sutton. Again, they're the ones you'd probably look more to the non-determination appeal as a, as a possible relief from the pain of, of long-term planning delay. Ultimately, what can investors do? Scout. Scout your planning authority. Before you go into that area, find out from local consultants, from people who are working with that authority, how they're doing at the moment. You can even go onto most planning authorities' websites now and they will give you a service level update. How are we doing as a service? What you don't do is just snap things to the inspector. There's a lot of appeals running to the inspectorate at the moment on the non-determination pathway. This is where the council go out of time and there's no prior approval. So you, you go out of time and you get a choice. You either stick with the planning authority or you send it straight before the inspector. 
the inspectorate is currently massively overloaded with non-determination casework. Uh, and the reason for that is, is delays in the system. If, if you don't think you're going to get the right answer from the council, you just snap it straight to the inspector and, and see what their answer is going to be. It may very well have been a case you could have got a positive result. Right. So factoring in more time, do you think investors are uh, looking for more deals that are subject to planning, um, you know, the exchange with exchange subject to planning rather than just going ahead and, and you know, before it might have taken six weeks eight weeks to get through now if it's taking four or five six months that you know people are shifting how they structure the deals i think there's a lot of shift in that respect i mean one of our sort of sister companies here we only look at deals that have an extent planning permission signal right. um because that gives us the greatest level of certainty that what they've got they've got now the other thing we do is we don't we do not try and deviate from that planning commission because the time cost in going back to the authority and saying, can we change something? <laughs> it's huge. So we make it work with what we've got. Yes, there is a lot of deal structuring going on out there at the moment. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of uh, quite sophisticated optioning arrangements where you know, some of my clients are, are looking at stuff with the clause that it has to be a satisfactory to them planning yeah. approval. So if the planning authority come back and knock a couple of units off, they don't have to exchange and complete just because they get their consent. So there's a lot of very sophisticated mechanisms going on at the moment to tie uh, vendors up. And do you think people are going for more deals with prior approval rather than just the standard full application? Do you want to talk about the difference between that for people who don't know? Yeah, sure. So prior approval... Um, is the exercise of a permitted development right, which has got a sequence of pre-commencement conditions built into it. And one of those pre-com conditions is that you must apply for prior approval and discharge certain things. Fine, nice and simple. Best way that I've ever had that explained to me was by an inspector when he was trying to explain it to a council. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So prior approval is in theory simplified, right? Prior approval is also unbelievably misunderstood now it has been seen historically as the panacea to all else it isn't and isn't anymore and certainly the uh, current level of misunderstanding or lack of understanding inside of both parts of the development world the private and the council-led authorities is that we're getting some very weird answers on prior approval matters incredibly strange answers. I'm dealing with one case in Elmbridge where um, it's run as a crash for 10 years. The council knew it ran as a crash for 10 years. They also refused a planning permission because it was a crash. And then when we go to say, well, it's a crash, we can change it to an office and the office can do some other things. They turn around and say, no, it's a church. Okay. You refused it because it's a crash. Now you're saying it's a church. Yeah, because you can't prove to us it's a crash now. That's not how this works. So that one's now would appeal. But that is sort of an example of the level of or level of misunderstanding. And and it's stemming from this glut of prior approvals that have occurred where the planning authorities just haven't been able to keep up with regulations. And the prior approval, uh, many people have been using this with commercial uh, buildings and offices in particular. 
Yeah. Um, how has that how's that been working? Because obviously with COVID and the you know the high street kind of in decline, so much more uh, stock on the market. You know, where were we up to with with supply and demand and and people looking to convert the the commercial pro- uh, uh, properties back to residential? Um, it's more of the same, really. The, the the changes that occurred last year just added a greater range of stock to the list of what you could play with. And so what we've got in effect is more of the same. There is, again, this, this lack of, there, there's this lack of proper understanding still perpetuated. Um, you can't, for example, make one of these power approvals now without the building being convertible in its, in its own right. You have to have all your windows there. You have to have it all working. You can't make any external changes anymore. So it's more a case of phasing and structuring the application. So that's almost where most of our prior approval work is, is starting to take its turn, is, is putting the applications in the right sequence. So we do something first, and then something second, and something third. And it, the, the, the sort of stepping stones approach to planning applications that we certainly follow here is becoming very much the norm right. now, at least in that part of the practice. And do you see any other trends in you know projects that are less risky, let's say, than others that have got more chance of getting through? If, if someone was to start out now and, and, and look for projects, um, any guidance on you know what to look for yeah you know where where would might people start the place so we can almost sort of it's best looking at the system of the now rather than the system that could be tomorrow the system of the now uh focused its attention very firmly in one place so all of the changes that we had focused our efforts into the high street setting and it did it for very good reason yeah, the high street setting is a fantastic place to do development. The high street setting is often the most sustainable place to do development. It is often the place where other forms of development are also acceptable. So serviced accommodation in high street, perfect. HMOs in the high street, lovely. Let's have a bit of that. Lots of flats in the high street, that's also good too. If you think about it, life in the high street breeds life. So if you have people living in a high street setting, they will then go and use the high street setting for the other things that high street provides. So one of the great successes that we've had in uh, Kings Lynn, which um, for those of you who are in other parts of the country is in Norfolk, Uh, Kings Lynn, a lovely property on Tower Street. We've just finished off the application cycling on it. So the first thing we did was we changed the use of the ground floor from a shop to an office. We needed to do that to move the first floor occupier, which was an office, downstairs so we could gain gain access to a prior approval upstairs. We then got prior approval for four flats in the upstairs. Lovely, so four flats, nice big office. We've just had a planning permission granted for a comprehensive development on that site, new top floor, uh, four flats up there, then four flats in the next floor down, and then chopping the office that was in the ground floor into four shops. Wow. High street setting, okay. life in the high street. That scheme, I believe, has been bought up by a um, affordable housing provider. 
who is actually absolutely loving putting affordable housing right in the middle of the high street because it's exactly where they want them to go. Wow, okay. And so other areas to do the planning that are um, lots of misconceptions, uh, for example, serviced accommodation. Uh, the question that I guess asked most is, you know, do we need planning for service accommodation? So we're turning a house or flat or you know block of flats, and we're going to be repurposing that for service accommodation. Do we need planning? Um, a, <laughs> what do you say to that? There's a massive level of whatever going yeah. on. Yeah, that, this this could almost be a podcast in itself, but <laughs> solid. Let, let's just go down this line. As far as we can tell, over the last year, we've dealt with quite a few SA-type applications now. And as far as we can tell, different councils are taking it in different ways. It'll either be C1, which is hotel, guest house, boarding house, that kind of thing. It'll be uh, C3, if it literally just is the traditional family holiday home, then, then that's more likely or not to be C3. It's C4, if you are uh, mixing people inside the same holiday home, but they come as a group. It's um, sui generis if you don't rent it as a group, if you're renting rooms individually, or it could be C2 if you're doing a care retreat. So it's a complete mess. Um, the brutal answer to the question is this. It is likely in my mind that the changes that are happening in Wales right now will find their way across into England. What's happening in Wales? Well, um, the Welsh Government is saying serviced accommodation and second homes, they both now need planning permission. We're going to give them new use classes and they both now need planning permission. That is to stop second home ownership and it's to stop serviced accommodation sprouting up everywhere. Um, Wales is always a test bed for stuff before it comes across into England. Uh, and so it is likely in the future we're going to see new use classes emerge for this kind of thing. Your, your listeners are probably now going, oh, what? <laughs> um, it remains to be seen how well it works in Wales. How can people future-proof what they do? If they're going into service accommodation, they're purchasing the property or they're... Um, you know, they're looking to change the use they can, uh, they're in the middle of refurbishment and they can, mm. they can change the use if, uh, if possible. What, what should they go to? Should they go to C1? So, so see, if you're in London, it's C1 or sui generis. Um, C1 if it's a more guest house setting, sui generis if it's, if it's something a bit more specialist. I've just got, I've got two applications in for apart hotels, both in County Durham. Um, County Durham really understand apart hotels. They're C1. Uh, so the that is quite quite future safe, okay. Because most councils understand what is going on with them, and it gives you a bit of flexibility. Um, what is not future safe is is essentially the bury your head in the sand approach of service accommodation is a dwelling. My guru tells me that. Fine, good. Um, that may very well have been the case like 10 years ago, but today in the here and now, the London effect is leaching out. We're seeing a variety of different interpretations of this. And then the final piece of advice I give on SA is understand what it means to you. I, I, having dealt with a few now, there are so many different definitions of what different people mean by service accommodation. 
that you almost have to look at it from a point of view of what does it actually mean to you as an operator? And then does that create a use that is unique to you? If it creates a use that's unique to you, then um, go for that unique sui generis use as a planning permission, and then you're safe that way. Okay. Okay. And um, any other sort of ways that we can future-proof in terms of the 90-day rule, then do you think that will spread across the country? Um, well, we, we know that it's already spreading. We know that different authorities are looking at the 90-day rule and they're looking at it from a point of view of, right, this is how London does it. Does it work for us as well? Oxford went for 140 days um, as their sort of local standpoint uh, to... But that was, in, in all honesty, to stop pop-up brothels under Airbnb than it was to stop anything else. Um, but 90 days is a good benchmark. It's a good marker. That is what the inspector in the Cambridge cases used as, uh, as the, his marker for this is different to a house. And if the property is under the C1 classification, are they exempt from that 90-day rule? They're exempt from the rule, yeah, because they're already in that serviced type of accommodation. They're already in that 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 holiday type accommodation. And so it, they're exempt from it. Yeah, that's worth, look, worth looking into then. Okay. And uh, what other changes in the planning world do you see that are sort of having an impact at the moment? Uh, I think it's more market than anything else. Um, we'll come on to, to our brand new Prime Minister in a minute, but <laughs> she is brand spanking new. I listened to her first PMQs this afternoon. Um, it's changing market, I think, that's the big thing. There are a few things going on in terms of market force that we just need to understand. So the first and the biggest is obvious. It is property value and what is going on with that. There's a lot of overheat in the market especially in certain sectors of the country and that overheat is sadly being caused by vendors with over aspiration on their land the for any advice to a property developer is just be realistic about what your land can offer the last two sort of developments i looked at as part of the sister company um, that's been very much focused in on uh, trying to get them BNB and demonstrating why they have to be BNB. Um, the other aspects of this is trying not to get drawn too much into the, the superlatives that are going on in the market right now. So there, there's this concept of co-living, there's this concept of sheltered accommodation. Uh, Again, they're kind of like service accommodation, really. What do they mean to you? There are actually 26 legal definitions of sheltered accommodation. Mm. Which one is it? Because depending on which one it is, will depend on which use class you fit in and depend on what you're doing with that property. Right. Um, equally so co-living. I, I know of one application so far in the city of Portsmouth for, for co-living. It was actually approved. Um, but it took so much justification to get it sorted out. And I'm about to make the second one. <laughs> so I'm using that application as sort of the, the, right, well, this is how this worked here. So this is what we're doing here. But what is why, yeah. why have they gone through the co-living sort of, um, you know, why have they just not gone for HMO? Um, well, amongst other things, because Portsmouth is an HMO Article 4 area with an incredibly ah. policy. Often right. these co-living solutions are used to sidestep that policy okay. from HMO. Okay. And how um, have they differentiated themselves from a HMO then? 
Well, that's that, a, a great question. Um, size, I think, is the simple answer to that. Co-living blocks tend to be massive. Right, okay, fair enough. And, and that appears to be the key differentiator is once you go beyond the traditional um, basic amenities of, of bathroom and kitchen, and you then start diverting off into cinema rooms and bars and uh, other such groovy things that nearest makes no odd sounds like my first hall of residence. Um, then you're into co-living apparently. So they might have the same bedroom sizes as a typical HMO, but because they've got more communal space, they can class themselves as co-living and therefore bypass the article four. And bypass the article four wow. altogether because they... They need planning permission in their own right, but the controls that bite against HMOs don't bite against something that's different. Ah, okay. I like that. It's a good one. <laughs> okay. Um, and okay, then well, let's let's come to where the where we're up to about the prime minister and what's what's new. Where do we think it's going to go in the next six to twelve months? Um, what's new? What's new? Um, the we've been trying to address the the what's new with the the new prime minister uh, over the course of her election campaign and congratulations to her for for, for winning that um, the thing for me comes out in a few different areas she's very much placed the burden of improvement at the floor of the planning system she's come out and said look, there have been lots of delays built into that system that needs sorting out. Secondly, she uh, has come out on the side of nutrient neutrality. She's come out and said, that is stupid. Right. All right. Why are we holding up development? Because the sewage companies can't get their act together. That's not fair. So we might very well see changes there as well in very short order. It does appear, having heard her first PMQs, that she's got a bee in her bonnet about quite a lot. And she's basically trying to hammer her ministers to get things changed inside the central government. I don't think you're going to see much changes in the way of permitted development or prior approval or, or planning per se. I, for example, the more far-reaching ideas brought forward by the former community secretary, who I understand is now retired to the back benches where he can watch YouTube videos, um, are all shelved, they're all dropped. They're not going to be progressing any further. We've got a brand new community secretary as well. So reality is that she's made some noises and it's whether or not she follows through with those. But I have an inkling that she is going to follow through with her statement on nutrient neutrality. That's those 74 authorities that can't do anything right now. And I get that inkling because of discussions I'm having with those authorities. Okay. They know something. They're not willing to tell me what they know because what they know is clearly private. They know something and they are wanting to now wait and see what Liz Trust does. That's that's the answer I'm getting from pretty much all of them. I think we're going to see a softening, at least to that policy, very, very quickly. 
Okay, well, watch this space on that one. And I know that you do a lot of work with, um, you know, your clients are not just property investors, but they come from the property education world, which mm-hmm. I think they're a different category uh, than just, you know, your, your typical developers out there that have not come across all the creative strategies and things that can be done in, in that respect. So do you, is there any kind of uh, trends that you're seeing there or any advice that you're giving to property investors who understand the more creative strategies, um, perhaps around, you know, using planning gain rather than going through the full development and, you know, with the risk of a dip in the market, you know, exposing themselves to unnecessary risks, so for example? A lot of our um clients are looking at flips following the grant of planning permission now rather than holding out for a development to to come forward and that's not just planning delay that's that's changes in the in the Jonathan, can i just uh can i just clarify when you say flips do you mean um actually doing the work or just no no no, no. i mean the grabbing the planning permission and, and sending right. it back right um so reality is that a lot of our clients now are doing that and they're they're effectively putting the property bang on back onto the market as soon as they've got the consent in order to yield get the planning gain out of it and send it on and there's a lot of sort of noise in the in the auction rooms at the moment with planning permissions that are coming forward into those rooms and getting snapped up by investors i think my advice to investors today is this just understand your strategy and stick with it. If you if your strategy is to do that form of planning gain uplift, then keep doing that. You're probably inflation safe at the moment um, because ultimately the value is then in the planning permission that you gain uh, and that is your value add. And as long as you're happy continuing to do that, it's great. If you're buying properties with planning permission, numbers are absolutely critical and key they're not going to lie to you and they're not going to magically get any better in six months time. So they have to work now and they have to work with what you've got. And then finally, the, the biggest thing I'd say to people is remember, if you're buying a building, you're buying an asset. This is not dead money. This is live money. It's active money. Uh, it's just tied up in a property for a period of time. So think about how you're doing your numbers in terms of right, I'm buying an asset. So what is then my risk after I bought the asset? If you're buying an asset with planning permission, are you buying it at its actual asset value or some weird aspirational value that's somewhere up in the stratosphere? Try and get it back down to its actual asset value. That's often the best way. And do you see that uh, the people you're dealing with are getting more educated? And by that, I mean, uh, perhaps they looking at a deal in a different way than, you know, just sort of you know a typical outside investor would who hasn't gone through that education training you know they might be looking at a project and they can see something different or they can see a few different exit strategies that someone else can't mm, there are those out there that, that do come to us with a defined goal and an objective and have sort of worked out for themselves how they're going to get there they want us to push it over the line that's fine that's great um there are still the majority, the loud majority, who come to us with little to no um, understanding of how planning works. Mm-hmm. And, and we are there as the support mechanism in order to do that. 
Um, so yeah, there, it, it's not that there's a changing balance of that inside the market. It's it just that we're seeing essentially more of the same and have done over the last year. Okay. And how do you work with local councils in understanding, you know, what their policies are and things? Because obviously each council can be completely different in how they're operating, what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, you know, I've heard in the past thing, okay, you, you should only go with a local planning consultant because they're going to know the, you know, the council's um, policies inside out. And obviously you uh, work with people across the country. So how do you navigate that area? We scout. We do what we say others should do. So we scout. We we go and look for comparable schemes. So we go and try and understand, is there anything particular this council absolutely hates? Um, We'll go and trawl through their planning policy and make sure. And then we try and do all that work before we take a client on. Right. There's this, it's what we call our safety check. Is the client asking to do something that's just crazy for that authority? Again, Croydon right now, you would not, absolutely would not apply for planning permission for a block of flats in Croydon right now. Wow. No reason to do it. There are 800 of the damn things on the market today. Wow. Right? Croydon's housing market is broken. But if you were to apply for three bedroom houses, if you were to apply for three-bedroom houses, Croydon would shake your hand and make you the mayor and, and you'd have a parade down the street because there are no three-bedroom houses for sale in Croydon for less than about 900 grand. Wow, okay. <laughs> wow, a bit different up north, isn't it? <laughs> but that's just, that, all that is, Michelle, is scouting knowledge. That's yeah. looking at the authority. What's going on right now? What is occurring? How have they dealt with previous applications in the past? How are they looking to deal with them in the future? That's gaining that knowledge. And do you find people will sort of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, once they understand uh, that, you know, they're, they're kind of going down the wrong, the wrong road there, wrong road, um, yeah. or do you, you know, will you still accept a project knowing that it's just not likely to happen? No, we won't accept a project knowing it's not going to happen. Doesn't That's- do us any good and certainly doesn't do the client any good. And how, what's the process to get to that point then in terms of, time with yourself and cost involved with the clients obviously each project's different but how soon will you know uh whether it's a, a go-ahead on that project or so not each project is safety checked okay so it's safety checked by one of the two planning directors myself and my, my colleague um, we as soon as it comes in we look at it and go and, and we do that initial share if it's an authority we work with before we'll know pretty instantly if it's one we don't then we'll scout them and, and see if it's something that they can actually support. They, so they know, the client normally gets an answer back same day that it's something we can take or no. But we, we safety check every project we do. And is there a cost to that consultation, that, that research? No, it's done, it's done relatively silently. So it's done off the back of an instruction. We, we take an instruction, we safety check it, and then we accept the instruction off the back of the safety check. Right. That sounds good. Great. Okay. And um, you just mentioned, let's have a final, a final kind of route there is you mentioned at auctions. Um, how do you see auctions at the moment? Because, you know, with the, in terms of planning, a lot of stock gets put in with either the wrong planning or the planning's lapsed or um, something like that. So do you still see those opportunities in auctions or is everything just too overheated still? 
Well, I'll, I'll explain that answer one or two ways. So I was watching an auction with a client about three, three months ago. Um, on the auction was a Seafort. I like Seafort. Seaforts are lovely. In Hull, in the Humber Estuary, right? The a only way fort. a Seafort, that is a fort in the sea. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Okay. On its own little island. Amazing. Amazing, gorgeous, lovely. I uh, had had a fire, so had a whacking great hole in the roof. Right. Right. The only way to get materials to this sea fort, <laughs> right, are either by Chinook helicopter or using a battleship because the tidal currents in the Humber are so strong, you wouldn't really want to get anything with less power out to it. Um, it was guided at 550,000. <laughs> 50 grand. Have a guess how much it went for. I have no idea. Half a million. No. So what? it went 10 times guide. Wow. And we thought, I thought it would stop at a quarter. But it just kept going and going and going and going and going. And going. That's the nature of auctions at the moment. Yeah. Anything can and will happen. Right. And you have to sort of take it as read that anything can and will happen in an auction. That's why my advice to anyone going to an auction remains the same. Do your homework, have a price and stick to it, go with a friend, they have your permission to assault you if <laughs> you go anywhere near over the agreed price. Sounds good. Because and otherwise, you, <laughs> you will. <laughs> and do you see, uh, you know what we were talking about, the planning game before, do you see mm. people who are, uh, you know, fast tracking what they're doing, but rather than just sticking it on the market on the regular you know, portals, they put it in auction instead, just to kind of get that quick. Flip. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. They absolutely do, and it, and it will have the planning permission it has sitting on it, and that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that as a strategy. It is just a, a principle of they need to calm down what they're doing inside the auction room, because often the biggest mistake that we see. Is, is the person who comes and says, John, it's got a planning permission. Great. I've just spent six times guide. Shit. Okay. Um, what do you need? What, what can I do to this property to maximize its value? That buzzword of maximization. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, nothing. Put it back in the auction. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they should have come to you before the hammock went down. All done their homework. Yeah. All done their homework. Homework is so important. It's important when you're at school and it's even more important when you're out in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, what are you up to at the moment? I know you've got some exciting news about your um, training program. So do you want to tell yeah, us? Yeah. So, that? so um, we have, this is taken, so victory is behind me. It's taken two years to get there. Uh, it's a all in one, one day planning course, utilizing what we call our victory model. Victory is a mnemonic that stands for V for verify, I for intelligence, C for compare, T for team, O for options, R for reality, and Y for you, right? And it's based on my 20 years in service experience to try and break the planning system down into a sequence of checkpoint steps that you pass every single, you assess every application on and you pass. And we use Victory here in this office. We've always used Victory. It's just as ingrained inside of us. I tried to turn it into something external. Um, Victory kicks off as a thing on the 24th of September. That's when we're running the first one. I'm happy to say that is a fully subscribed day, which is wonderful. 
Um, the second day is gaining traction already because people who couldn't get on the first day are wanting to do the second image. Wonderful as well. Uh, that's in December. We're planning to run one a quarter. Okay. Um, it's as far as we can make out, the UK is only not for profit. And when I say not for profit, what I mean is it's run on the full cost recovery principle. That is all of the costs, and that doesn't include my time, because my time is given for free. All the costs associated with the with running the day are borne by the day itself. So what people pay to go on the day, that's just to cover the costs, and that's it. Um, it's also, as far as we can tell, the only CPD certified planning course currently being offered. Uh, again, it's taken about two years to get that CPD certification. Uh, it's worth eight credit hours. This is an eight hour course and we've been allotted the full eight, eight credit hours uh, by our partners, the CPD group, which is brilliant. Um, to get there, we had to get ourselves accredited as an organization, get myself accredited as a trainer and then submit the course. Wow. <laughs> All good. First time in a long time I've had to write a lesson plan Right. I trained as a geography teacher before I trained as a teacher. Okay. And I did some practical in, in class geography experience, I had to write lesson plans. So I had to write lesson plans off gold standard because that's what they were after. Um, so first time in a long time, I had to write lesson plan. And then as part of the course, everyone gets access to it, or everyone gets given a copy of the book. There is a book. Here it is. And it's a proper book. It's a real book. <laughs> it's a no, real book. No PDFs here. <laughs> No, no PDFs, no, no ring binders here. Uh, and uh, they, that goes with it. So it all comes part of it. Fantastic. So um, if you could send us the links, we'll put those in the show notes so people can find out more about that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly do that, Michelle. Great. Um, you know, we work with you, uh, you know, work with uh, yourself, Jonathan, for many, many years through YPN. And you are also doing some articles for us as well. Uh, when do they start? So first one, I'm writing the first one for, I believe it's a December issue. That is going to be a track through of Victory and how it compared to um, uh, the scheme that we did in Kings Lynn that eight unit scheme with shops below. So that's how victory, how that all played into the victory model or how the victory model then informed that progression uh, and, and, and the results for it. I'm the article's actually written, I'm literally just waiting on permission from the client in question to give me the financials on it so I can also share the financials. And as long as they're happy, then then great, we'll share the financials. Oh, that'll be really useful. We'll look out, look out for that. But um, thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. You're welcome. Great to have you on and uh, look forward to uh, seeing your articles and, and good luck with your uh, training programmes as well. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks, take care. And for Thanks anyone who is not yet a subscriber to the magazine, please click the link in the show notes for your free 30-day trial.